0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Genesis chapter 2, where we're going to begin in just a moment. You'll be reaching for a Bible and be turning it to Genesis chapter 2. I think you'll find that most beneficial during this part of our worship. Genesis, the second chapter, will be our launching point, and we'll be in a number of different places in the Scripture for these next few minutes. As you're turning there and as you're getting settled in, I'll just join in with with Brother Josh in extending an extra welcome to each and every one this morning, just say how delighted I am to get to be in your number, to get to be a part of the fellowship that we are engaging in uh, during this hour, to get to sing with you and to pray with you and now to study with you from the pages of God's Word. This being the last Sunday of the month, that means that it is time to revisit our preaching theme for 2017 on taking sin seriously as we work at least once a month throughout the year to try to equip ourselves with the knowledge and the instruction and the tools that God has given us in His Word so that we might be able to not only fight the battle with sin, but that we might actually be victorious in that battle. And that's going to begin this morning in Genesis chapter 2 as God gives these instructions. In Genesis chapter 2 and in verse 16. Genesis 2 verse 16, God commanded there, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden... But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Have any of you ever heard the parable of the stove? If that doesn't sound familiar to you, don't worry. It's not in the Bible. I don't want you to think that you're somehow not acquainted with the Scriptures. It's not a Bible parable. It's a a man-made parable. The parable of the stove goes a little something like this. One Saturday morning, a mother was in the kitchen cooking breakfast at the stove. She was making eggs. And her little girl walked in to see exactly what it is that she was doing. The mother said to the little girl as she was cooking, she said, listen to me very carefully. Do not touch the stove. If you do, you're going to be punished and you might get burned. We might even have to take you to the hospital. Don't touch the stove. And so the little girl said, yes, ma'am, and she exited the kitchen. For the next couple of mornings, as that little girl would wake up and get ready to, to head to school, and as she would pass through the kitchen, as she walked through the kitchen, her inquisitive eye would go, can you guess where? It would go directly to that stove. She looked at it, intently focused on it, but she didn't touch it those first couple of days. On the third morning, though, she walked into the kitchen and her curiosity had gotten the best of her. And so after looking around, checking to see if the coast was clear, making sure Mama wasn't anywhere to be found, she tiptoed up to the stovetop and then with just the very tip of her one finger, she lightly touched one of the burners and nothing happened. Because the stove wasn't on. She didn't get caught. She didn't get burned. She didn't get punished. None of those bad things happened. And so the next day she walked into the kitchen and she looked to the left and she looked to the right. The coast was clear. And so she then stuck two fingers onto the stovetop. And once again, nothing happened. For the next couple of days, her courage really started to kind of get at an all-time high. She started sauntering into the kitchen. Really wasn't even bothering looking around to see if Mama was anywhere to be seen. And so she started running her entire hand across the stovetop. And guess what? Still nothing happened. But then Saturday morning rolled around again. and She walked into the kitchen where her mother had been, but her mother had just stepped out to go and retrieve something from the pantry. And she came up to that stovetop that she had seen and she had touched without any problems whatsoever for the last several days, and not thinking at all about any possible repercussions, she laid her hand on top and... And her little world, as she knew it, came crashing down around her. It was Saturday. Mama was cooking eggs that morning. And so the little girl, she screamed in pain. My hand, my hand. She fell down on the floor, writhing in pain. Mama came in. She knew exactly what had happened. She picked the little girl up, put her in the car, took her to the doctor, ended up having to get treated for first-degree burns. And to make matters worse, when she got home... Just as Mama had promised, she was sent to her room and she was punished. Why? Because she didn't do what Mama had said. Now, what is the moral of that little parable? Well, the obvious moral to me is, you better listen to your Mama. Mama is always right. You better do what Mama says. But you know, I think if we kind of dig a little bit deeper, there's maybe some even deeper morals to that story. In fact, the skeleton of that little story should have sounded somewhat familiar to you. Because I think that in some ways is really just a modern retelling of the story that's recorded for us here in Genesis chapter 2 and in Genesis chapter 3. Because just like the mom in our parable, God, the Father, had given some rules. And God was abundantly clear about those rules. We just read them in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Don't eat that fruit. If you do, you will surely die. Now what I would like to think is I would like to think that Adam and his wife Eve, I'd like to think that they took that rule, they took that warning seriously at least for a little while, maybe a few hours, maybe even a few days, but I'm going to wonder if somewhere in between the seam of chapter 2 and chapter 3 that maybe Eve got, maybe she got just a little bit curious. Got talking about that tree. Boy, must be something about that tree. She maybe started eyeing that tree a little more and a little more. Maybe got a little bit more comfortable every day as she passed by the tree. In fact, I am certain that she at least got comfortable enough to have some conversations about that tree. Because the very next thing that happens in Genesis chapter 3 is she's having a conversation about the tree. She's talking to a snake about that tree. Read with me in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither should you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it that your eyes will be opened and that you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She knew the rule. She knew what God had said about that. Yet she approached the tree anyway, I'm going to guess, very, very cautiously. I kind of picture it in my mind, kind of almost tiptoeing up to that tree, just like the little girl tiptoeing up to the stove. And as she reached out, she put that hand up there, she reached out and she touched the fruit and nothing happened. In fact, she clutched the fruit in her hand, plucked it from the tree, and once again, nothing happened. She then took of it and even ate a bite for herself. I'm going to guess maybe it was a kind of a small bite, a very tender and delicate, very timid kind of bite, but still, nothing happened. Then she offered it to her husband. And when he ate, their world as they knew it came crashing down around them. You know what verse 7 says. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and the consequences of their action became clear. Everything that God had promised would happen, happened to them. Now, what is it? Those two stories. We've got this made-up story, this parable of the girl in the stove. And we've got this real story, this real account of Adam and Eve in the garden here. What is the similarity between those two stories? Well, I think there's several similarities, but I believe this is the one I want to focus on this morning. I believe that both of those stories well illustrate the damaging power of what I'm going to call today the first concession. Do you understand what I mean by that? That little girl in the parable, she did not bring all of that pain and all of that heartache on herself The day that she laid her hand on that hot stove top. No, her pain and her troubles began days prior. Her troubles started the moment that she could not take her eye off of that stove and she then put that one little finger on top of it exactly as her mother had told her not to do. That first concession led to a whole string, a whole series of additional concessions that eventually led to the consequence that her mom said was going to happen. In the very same way, I believe that that's what happened with Eve. Eve brought that pain on her and her husband and her family long before she and Adam ever ate that bite of the fruit. That trouble started, I believe, whenever she started making the first concession. The concession to to kind of stand near to the tree. To talk and engage in conversation about the tree to look longingly at the tree, to start reaching up and touching the tree, to pluck the fruit from the tree, all of which in her mind probably seemed rather inconsequential, but that first concession, whatever it was, it then opened up the door for her and her husband's demise. And the truth of the matter is, you don't need made-up parables. You don't even need to go all the way back to the beginning of time to know about the snowball effect that that first concession can have in our lives and in the lives of the people that are around us. For example, here's maybe a teenager who is steeped in the consequences of sexual immorality. Here's maybe a young lady. She has destroyed her self-worth because she's engaged in fornication. She has brought pain and shame upon herself and her family. She maybe now has an unwanted pregnancy. Maybe she has a very unwanted sexually transmitted disease. Maybe all of her future plans for for college and her career, all of that has been derailed. Let me ask you, when did all of that trouble start? Was it that fateful night when she was in the wrong place with the wrong guy doing the wrong things? No. No, I believe the trouble started days, weeks, maybe even months before whenever she made that first concession that first decision to go out on a date with that wrong guy. Or, you know, maybe here's a man who is steeped in the consequences of substance abuse. He's developed maybe an addiction to alcohol. He's damaged his body and his physical health. He's destroyed his family. Maybe he's lost his wife. He's lost his kids. He's living now with a sense of hopeless guilt. Listen, that guy did not ruin his life The moment that he drank, I don't know, the 100th bottle of liquor. No, his problem began the moment he took that first sip of beer when he was hanging out with his buddies. The power of that first step. And what I'm saying to you this morning is that if you don't want to go that full distance with sin and all of the painful consequences that come with it, then what I'm saying today is I am saying don't take that first step. Do not ever make that first concession. You see, what we're talking about this morning is we're talking about taking control of our choices so that we can actually stop trouble before it ever even starts. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be taking sin seriously? I take sin so seriously that I want to nip it in the bud before it ever even gets going. That we are able to take measures in our lives that will short-circuit the process of the devil's work, of the devil's temptations. We can actually disrupt that process. And in so doing, we can prevent the damaging effects that sin brings into our lives. This morning, I want to set before you three simple truths that I believe if we will ingrain deeply into our hearts and into our minds, they will empower us to avoid Ever making that first concession. And that all begins with understanding this first idea. And that is that small things lead to big things. You know, how many examples in scripture do we need in order to illustrate this point? There's lots in scripture. We could go to the beginning and talk about, we could talk about Cain. With Cain, what started as anger and jealousy, some feelings that we might consider a relatively small thing, was not controlled. Instead, it was harbored and it was festered and it boiled and it ended up boiling over to becoming resentment and hatred and even murder. Small things became big things. Or what about David? We just studied about David during VBS a couple of months ago. David made the mistake of simply looking too long at a woman who was bathing while he was standing on the rooftop. He just looked at something he shouldn't have been looking at for just a few seconds too long. And what did that lead to? It led to a chain of events that included adultery, deception, and even murder as well. What about when we come to the New Testament? What about a person like Judas? Judas was, well, he was just pilfering a little bit in the money bag. Taking a little bit of money out of that money bag. He probably probably shouldn't have been doing that. That wasn't good. That was showing some signs of, of some greed and some covetousness there. But yet that small thing to some... It ended up leading to a big thing where he was actually selling out, betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We can do this all morning long, but what all of those examples illustrate is that every little thought you think, every little image that you view, every little word that you say is a step in some direction. And if it is indeed the wrong direction, then it's not going to take long before that little thing Becomes a big problem. Look with me in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at Matthew chapter 5, please. In Matthew chapter 5, let's say we were to talk about maybe a big sin, or at least what we would consider a big sin, like adultery, fornication, some kind of sexual immorality. Something that's just incredibly damaging, where we know the bad results of doing that thing. Hopefully all of us would say about that, we'd say, well, I don't... I I don't want to do that. I don't want to get caught up in that. I don't want to get swept up in that. I, I don't want anyone that I know and love to be involved in that. Okay, if you don't want to go there, then we're probably going to need to start right here. And what is it that right here is? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, look at verse 27. In Matthew 5, verse 27, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know what Jesus is saying here? If you don't want to commit adultery, then Jesus says, don't be thinking in terms of adultery. Don't ever make that first concession in your heart and in your mind. As one fellow that I know put it, he said, adultery doesn't start in the bed. Adultery starts in the head. And that is exactly right. If we would work to control some of those internal things that are going on, those internal thoughts, those internal feelings, then what we can do is we can cut sin off at the knee. Let me show you that again. Look in chapter 6 of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 6, you know, one of the great sins in our day and time is the sin of materialism. That is where people are putting... Things and stuff and and items and activities. They're putting those things before God. And it becomes this this lifestyle that just kind of engrosses someone. People struggle to even break free of materialism when they get sucked into that. Well, Well, what can be done about that? Is there anything that can be done? Well, Jesus tells us what can be done. Look at Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19. Jesus says there, Matthew 6, verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Look at verse 22 now. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that Darkness. If you don't want to be a materialistic person, somebody who's always focused on things, things of the physical realm, then what Jesus says is he says, you need to watch your peepers. You need to pay attention to what you look at. Because if you are constantly feasting your eyes on material things, all these things that you see, all these things around us, that they're so shiny and they look so nice, and I want those things. It's only a matter of time that the things that you see then lead to something much deeper and much greater. They do breed materialism. He says, get control of the things that you allow your eyes to see. You know, I want to suggest to you this morning that it is considerably easier to work on some of those small choices that we make internally and in some cases we make privately than it is to work later on on some big, gigantic problem that we have allowed to grow externally and not only consume us, but maybe even other people around us. Look in James, the first chapter, please. In James, chapter 1, this is a passage that we've leaned upon at least a couple of different times in this series this year, and with good reason. Because in James, the first chapter, James really kind of diagrams for us this process of sin. How does all of this come about? Well, James tells us. In James chapter 1, read with the beginning of verse 13. In James 1, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, "Oh, well, I'm being tempted by God. No. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin and And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin always starts with seemingly insignificant steps like feelings or thoughts or looks. All of that is the genesis before it then actually grows and breeds actions. And then, as James points out, the consequences of those actions. And in one sense, I read that passage and it's, it's kind of frightening to think about that, how this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. That is kind of a scary thing. But I'll tell you, I've tried to look at James chapter 1 with a different set of eyes. I actually think there's some good news in that passage. Because what that passage tells me is that if we can stop that process early on in the beginning stages, then we can actually stop it completely. You think about it this way. None of us, I'm going to assume none of us, None of us is able to stop an avalanche. Raise your hand if you think you could stop an avalanche. That's what I thought. None of us can stop an avalanche. But every single one of us can melt a tiny snowflake. And I'm saying this morning that the way for us to stop, to prevent the avalanche of sin in our lives is to start melting those small snowflakes one by one by one before it ever even accumulates and becomes an avalanche. Don't let small things become big things. That is a basic biblical principle. Now, even as I say that, I feel like I need to qualify that statement. I need to qualify truth number one with truth number two, and that is this. There are actually no small things in the eyes of God. If something's right, it's right. And if something's wrong, it's wrong. Whether it's just something that happens to enter my mind for a a few minutes and, and nobody else ever knows about it. Or whether it's something that I do very outwardly and it affects everybody around me and it lingers with me for the rest of my life. If it violates the will of God, then that needs to be eliminated from my life. Regardless of whether I or society deem that to be something small or whether we deem it to be something large. And why is that? Well, the reason for that is is because God does not view sin in the same kinds of terms that we often do. You know, can you think of some Bible stories where to our way of thinking, boy, it just seemed like God was was really harsh or maybe God kind of overreacted a little bit. Here's somebody who committed some sin or did something. Maybe we don't even even consider a sin. We just think, well, they kind of acted foolish a little bit there. And it really didn't seem like that big of a deal, again, to our way of thinking, yet God acted like it was the most terrible thing that this person could have ever done. For example, what about Moses? Good old Moses. Moses hit a rock. Come on, he hit a rock. He struck a rock and God did not let him enter into the promised land. I mean, come on, it's not like Moses cursed God. No, he just got mad for a little moment, got a little bit upset. It's a little thing. little thing does. Or what about you move a little bit further in the Old Testament. What about Nadab and Abihu? God struck those guys dead for offering what he called strange fire on his altar. What? It's not like those guys were worshipping the devil. They were worshipping God, just doing a little bit different than maybe the way that God had originally said to do it. But come on, that's kind of a little thing. Or what about in the New Testament? You may be thinking about Ananias and Sapphira. Again, they sold that property and it's not like they held back everything. It's not like they gave God nothing of those proceeds. No. They just gave God a little bit less than what they had made it seem like they had gave. Just a just a little white lie. God dropped them dead on the spot. In all of those cases, and again, we could just enumerate all kinds of examples like that, but the point is exactly the same. In the eyes of God, The things that we often consider as just being kind of small, minor things, in God's eyes, they actually aren't small, minor things. You know, I'm afraid that kind of our justice system has conditioned us to to always think in those ways. We categorize things. That's the way it works in the justice system. There are infractions. Then a little step above that, there's misdemeanors. then a step above that, there are felonies. And then you get get bigger than that, federal kinds of cases. But I'm saying to you this morning that whether it's something that scandalizes the community or whether it is something that only you and the Lord know about, sin is sin to God. You know, in that little parable that we told at the beginning of the lesson, when did the little girl do wrong? When did that little girl do a bad thing in the eyes of her mother? It wasn't the moment that she got burned. It was when she did that first little fingertip on the tip of the stove and touched it. That was probably small in her eyes, not that big of a deal. But you know what? It was just as wrong on that first day as it was on the day that she finally got burned. Would you go back to Matthew chapter 5 again? Look in the Sermon on the Mount here. Jesus puts together kind of a list. Notice this list that Jesus gives. And in this list of different things that Jesus is talking about, he's kind of talking about some things from the old law. You've heard that it was said this, but then I say this to you. Jesus is preaching here really on the need to stop things early, even if they are just internal, even if they are very private, and even if they are, to our way of thinking, very small. And what's interesting in all of these cases is is that Jesus points out is that you need to stop these things. You need to stop doing this stuff, not because of where it might lead to, Not because it might escalate and become a really big thing. No, Jesus says you need to stop doing those little things because those little things in and of themselves are sin. And that's what we sometimes forget. Look in Matthew chapter 5. Look in verse 21. There Jesus says, Matthew 5 verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now let's just stop right there. I'm not going to hesitate to say that. Well, that that seems like a big thing. Murder. That's a really big thing. I'm going to say that if you murder someone, that is massively wrong. There are massive consequences to that. God is going to be massively upset if you take someone else's life unjustly. But Jesus says, well, don't stop there because I've got some more I want to say about that. Verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What Jesus says is, he says you're angry with your brother, you're going to incur the same judgment as the guy who murders someone. Somebody maybe says, well, I don't want to be angry with my brother because you know what, that might lead to some much bigger problems. That might lead to all kinds of sinful kinds of things. But Jesus says, if you're angry with your brother, you've already got a problem. You see, it's not just about what that anger could escalate to. No, Jesus says it's about what you're doing right now. That anger with your brother, that is sinful. What about those verses we read just a minute ago here from Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28, about the lust in your heart and how that can then lead to adultery? Jesus did not say, look at those verses again, verse 27 and 28. Jesus did not say, now don't lust in your heart because it could become adultery. That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus said, don't lust in your heart because lusting in your heart, that is sinful in and of itself. It's wrong, not because of where it could lead. It's wrong because Jesus says it's wrong. Or look a little further in Matthew 5. Look at verse 31. In verse 31, Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, Jesus does not say don't divorce your wife for a reason other than sexual immorality because it might put that other person in a compromising situation. Or it might put some third party in a compromising situation. No! Jesus says don't divorce your wife for a reason other than sexual immorality because you'll be committing sin. Period. End of discussion. You see, what we might argue... We might argue that that small concessions lead to big ones. And and, and I do think that's true. I think that is a a fundamental principle. But what we need to understand, kind of even at a more basic level, is that God is just as displeased with that first concession as He is with where it ends up leading to. Which means then that we need to pay attention. We need to be mindful of those so-called little things and we need to just decide right here and right now, you know what? If that violates God's will, then that's not for me. If, it, if it, it don't matter if it's if it's huge or whether it's tiny in my eyes, if it violates God's will, I'm not doing that. Which then leads right into this third and final truth this morning. That'll really, I think this, this is really maybe the one that kind of takes it to a whole other level. That really helps us to be deterred from ever making that first concession to sin. And that is whenever we understand. That Christianity is not merely about dodging the consequences of sin. Can I revisit that parable of the girl and the stove? What would have happened if that very first day, that very first morning that she decided to put her finger on top of the stove, what would have happened if on that day she had gotten just a, just a, a little burn? Just a, woo, just a little sting there touching the stuff just a little woo, just a, send a little, little shiver down her spine what would have happened i tell you what i think would have happened i think she never would have touched it again because that consequence feeling the pain of that consequence it would have pushed her away it would have okay i don't ever need to do that anymore but you know what when she touched it that first time there weren't any of those consequences Which is exactly why she kept coming back day after day after day and doing it again and again and again. Now I'm going to say to you this morning, if we are basing our choices, if we're basing our decisions merely on the consequences, then I'm going to tell you something. The devil is really, really good at baiting us with what he would have us to believe is consequence-free sin. That's what the devil's trying to sell. Sin that is free of any consequences. At least that's how He makes it look to us. Hey, you can do this and you won't get caught. Mom and Dad will never find out. Nobody, nobody at church will ever find out about this. Hey, you can get away with this and it's not going to hurt anybody. It's not going to damage anybody's property. It's not going to inflict some other kind of physical pain on somebody. You can do it and you can get away with that. Or you know what? Even if you do do this and maybe you do get caught, hey, the punishment, it's kind of light, not really all that painful, it's not that big of a deal, You can you'll be fine. Or hey, you can do this. You can do it this one time. Say I'm sorry. Repent of it. And, and you can be forgiven of your sin. And then you don't have to go to hell for all of eternity. Just do it. Repent of it. And everything will be okay. And unfortunately, I'm afraid the devil the devil wins that victory with us a lot of times. Where we become very, very consequence oriented in our decisions. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. I can do this. Because it's not that big of a deal. I can do this because nobody's really going to get hurt from it. I can do it. Nobody is ever going to know about it. I can do this because I know that I'm not going to allow it to get too far and I'll just repent of it later and all will be well with me and the Lord. I believe we can convince ourselves to do just about anything if we believe that we can escape and dodge and avoid the punishment and the consequences of our decisions. But I want you to hear me very, very carefully. Being a Christian is not just about avoiding the consequences of sin. Being a Christian is about something far greater than that. Would you find Colossians chapter 3 with me? In Colossians chapter 3, from our thoughts, to what it is that we look at, to the initial words that come rolling off our tongue, the reason that we hold all of those things captive is not merely because, well, I don't want to burn in hell forever. No, the reason that we bridle those things, the reason we keep those things in check, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Stop right there for a moment. Just look at those first four verses. Look at all of the reasons that Paul gives for us to live right. Verse 1, Christ has been raised. I have been raised. Verse 3, I've given my life over to His care and to His protection. I'm hidden with Him. And then verse 4, the fact that He is coming back And He is coming back to reward those who are found doing His will. Those are motivations. Those are wonderful motivations to live and do what's right. Those are wonderful motivations to stay away from sin and the awful things that come with it. Therefore then, verse 5, therefore put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Let me ask you... Why would a Christian make the decision to put those things away? Why would a child of God say, that stuff, yeah, not going to do that. Why would a Christian do that? Would you want to put those things away so that you don't incur the wrath of God? Well, certainly. That's actually in the very next verse, verse 6. But did you notice, that's not how Paul begins this section. All of the verses that were prior to the therefore, Paul says, That's the reason that we put these things away. The reason that we stay away from sin, the reason that we put these works of the flesh away from us is because we've been made alive in Christ. He has saved me. He died for me. He has given me new life. He has made me a new creation. And that's what I need to see. That's my motivation. That's why I'm going to resist temptation. That's why I'm going to live the Christian life. And I'll tell you, as a wonderful byproduct of that, I am able to avoid the consequences of my sin. But my primary motivation for serving the Lord is my love and my appreciation for who He is and for what He's done. If I go back to that story of the girl in the stove, why should that little girl have never reached up and touched that stove? I'll tell you why she shouldn't have done that. Because her mother told her not to And her mother is her mother. Her mother brought her into the world. Her mother takes care of her. Her mother knows what's best for her. Her mother loves her. Her mother protects her. Her mother has authority over her. And her mother simply told her, don't do that. And that alone should have been more than enough reason for her to do the right thing. And the same goes for you and I. I want to do what the Lord says Because He is right. And obeying Him is always right. He knows what's best for me. He loves me. He has authority over me. And when I do what He says, it's going to help me to become more like Him. Are you still there in Colossians 3? Drop down to verse 8. In verse 8, in that very same context, Paul says there, but now put away. Put all these things away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Why do you want to put all that stuff away? Paul goes on verse 9. Seeing then, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. That's what Christianity is all about. It is about being conformed to His image. Being like Him in every possible respect so as to bring honor and to bring glory to His name. In fact, that's really all encapsulated well in verse 17. Whatever you do, whatever it is, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Paul teaches here that I am to honor my King with all of my choices, all of those thoughts, all of those looks, all of those touches. I want to do that in every way and in every day. That that is the very essence of Christian living. And do you see then how that serves really as a powerful deterrent to ever making that first concession for sin? Because that first look at things that I shouldn't be looking at, that first thought about things that I don't need to be thinking about, that first touch of the stovetop, that would be disrespectful to my King. That would be a total disregard for His will for my life. And I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I'll say once again here, there is a place for us to consider the outcome and the repercussions and the consequences for our actions. That can be helpful. But I want to tell you, we can trick ourselves. The devil will trick us. That whenever those consequences for our actions, whenever the consequences are not immediately apparent, oh look, you know, the sky's not falling. The world's not coming to an end because I touched the stovetop. As a result, we can trick ourselves into believing. That we can make one concession after another concession after another concession after another concession until finally, maybe at the moment we least expect it, we finally do get burned. What's the cure for that? The cure for that is we've got to stop reasoning from consequences and instead we need to reason from convictions. I have convictions that Jesus Christ is King. I have convictions that His will for my life is best. I'm going to live according to His will. Now, with all of that said, let me close this morning with this. I hope we have certainly seen this morning that just one small step in the wrong direction can create an outcome that will cost us dearly, not just in this life, but even in the life that is to come. And hopefully, these three truths, these three principles will be a help to us as we go day by day and we don't ever make that first step. But I want us to think about this as we extend the invitation of the Lord. The inverse of what I just said is also true. Just as it takes just one small step in the wrong direction to lead to destruction and all kinds of pain, all it takes is just one small step in the right direction. Just one small step toward God that can be the genesis, the beginning, the start of something that will end up growing and reaping a bountiful harvest of blessing, a blessing that will end up making our lives better, not just in the here and now, but blessings that will make our lives much better in eternity. And so we extend the invitation of Jesus the Christ with that in mind. It is an invitation to take, to take an important step, to step and turn away from sin. The Bible word for that is repentance. To put Jesus Christ on in baptism for the forgiveness of each and every sin so that you can then rise out of that water, something new. You can leave here today as something new. You can walk in newness of life as a son or as a daughter of the King. Can we help someone this morning to become a Christian? Brother or sister, it may be that you know all too well about those damaging effects of making the first concession. Maybe you have made the first concession. or Maybe a second or a third or maybe even more. And as a result, you've dropped your guard and sin has re-entered your life. Maybe it's just making a total mess of things. Making a mess of things in your walk with the Lord. It's making a mess of things in your family. It's making a mess of your, your influence with the world that is around you. Can we pray with you this morning? Can we encourage you this morning? Can we help you to live in a better way to serve the King? We're singing this song right now to encourage anyone who is in need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ that is able to take away our sins. If we can help you to access that amazing blood by your obedience, then would you make your way down front and make your wishes known? Do it right now while we stand and while we sing.